This morning we are continuing our series in the book of Nehemiah, and so if you've got a Bible with you, I would love to invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 12. Uh, it will also be on the screen uh, behind me, and I'm going to be reading Nehemiah, the second half of Nehemiah 12, it's going to be uh, starting at verse 27. And uh, before I forget, I should just mention that there, there will be a Q&A after the sermon. So if you have questions during the sermon, you can text them to the number on the screen there. And uh, I will attempt to answer those at the end. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 12. If you haven't been with us over the past couple months, we've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is about God's people returning after exile to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall around the city so that they can regather for worship. And they've finished the wall, and then it says this, Nehemiah 12, 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites... They sought, the, <laughs> sorry. they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness and with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal, and from the region of Geba and Azamaveth. <laughs> for the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall of the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah, and half of the leaders of Judah, and Azariah, Ezra, Meshulam, Judah, Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, the son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Melaliah, Gilaliah, Maai, Nethanel, Judah, and Hanani with the musical instruments of David, the man of God. And Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. And the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall above the tower of the ovens to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim and by the gate of Yeshanah. And by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, and the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests, Eliakim, Maasiah, Miniaimen, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah and Hananiah with the trumpets, and Maasiah, Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzai, Jehoanan, Melchizedek, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? 
Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that as we have read and heard your word, that you would speak to us now. That in the midst of all these names that are difficult to pronounce, and a historical situation that's very unfamiliar to us, would by the power of your spirit, your word come to life in our midst. And would you help us to see more fully who Jesus is, that we might be more fully the people you've called us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you um, may know, uh, I know we've been getting to know each other over the last several months, and uh, you, you may or may not know that one of the many stops that our family has made along the, the, the path that God has led us uh, on is, uh, was, was a, a period of time we spent in Salt Lake City. We lived in Salt Lake City for uh, six years when I was uh, a college pastor there. And it's interesting, whenever you tell somebody that you lived in Utah, they, there are really three questions that everybody seems to want to ask about. The first question, there's usually this pregnant pause, and then people say something like, are there a lot of Mormons there? And yeah, there's a lot of Mormons in Salt Lake. Um, people usually want to talk about skiing, too. Um, not as much in Colorado. I think Coloradans have a... Uh, like this fierce pride about skiing and don't really want to acknowledge that there's snow in Utah. But, um, but the, the third thing, and this usually is the third thing that comes up. People are really fascinated by the Great Salt Lake. And, and they'll be like, How, what, what's, what's the deal with that lake? And um, it's really big, right? And why is it so salty? And the, the Great Salt Lake is a... Um, uh, it's a geographical phenomenon. It's the largest body of water west of the Mississippi. Um, and it's incredibly salty. The Great Salt Lake is about four times as salty as the ocean, which means that you can float in it like crazy. Like you, apparently you go in it and you just float at the top. And I say apparently because I don't know. I've never been there. Uh, it's gross. It stinks. There are a couple times in the year where when the wind blows just right, the stink of the lake blows into the city and it just reeks. Um, I went to Greeley a couple weeks ago and I imagine there's something of a similar phenomenon. I've been told that we get that here too. Nothing negative about Greeley implied in that comment. Um, the Great Salt Lake is enormous. It's larger than the states of Delaware and Rhode Island, um, but I've never been in it. I wouldn't put my kids in it because it smells. It's this dead lake. And the reason that it's a dead lake and the reason it's so salty is because there are three main rivers and all kinds of other runoff that run into the Great Salt Lake, but there's no outlet from the Great Salt Lake. And so everything that these rivers and runoff carries with it, including minerals, especially salt, finds its way into the Great Salt Lake, and then it never, ever leaves. And what that means is that almost nothing grows in the Great Salt Lake. Brine shrimp and some weird bacteria grow, but that's it. It's dead and it's gross. And it's dead and gross because it has no outlet. We are approaching the end of our series in Nehemiah where we've seen God at work rebuilding his people as they return from exile. And one of the things that we've seen over and over again <clears throat> 
in the book of Nehemiah is that God's people are called to be holy, to be different, to be set apart from other people, um, to be different than the rest of the world. And I, I, I don't know um, what you think about the word holy. I, I think the word holy is probably not a real popular word in our time, in our culture. It gets a bad rap, but the word holy just means different. It means to be set apart. It means that as God intends to bless the entire world, he does that by calling people to himself. And God says, I'm going to bless you, I'm going to bless my people, so that through you I will bless the rest of the earth. I'm going to bless you so that you will bless everyone else. And I think that the reason that the word holiness gets a bad rap in our time is because we tend to think of holiness a little bit like the way the Great Salt Lake functions. That holiness is sort of this reservoir. That holiness is the product of things that have been poured into us. But the reality is that holiness becomes toxic unless it has an outlet. Our lives are not meant to be reservoirs of toxic holiness as much as they are meant to be rivers through which life flows to us, but then on to others. And tragically, all too often, the Christian church and Christian individuals, I think, have become reservoirs of holiness, reservoirs into which flow abundant life and mercy and grace and the gifts that God has given to his people. All sorts of gifts that God has given to his people, primarily new life in Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And yet, if they don't have an outlet, holiness gets twisted and it turns toxic. It gets twisted and it turns toxic and it begins to stink and it becomes incredibly attractive to those who live nearby. In this passage in Nehemiah 12, we see that holiness, rightly understood, can never be a reservoir of toxicity. It must be a river of life. We can never be a dead end for God's blessing. We can only be a conduit through which God's blessing flows, yes, to us, but then on to others as well. It's been fascinating. I've mentioned this a couple times, but our own experience as a church has paralleled in so many ways the experience of God's people in the book of Nehemiah as we've been studying this passage. And in this passage, my hope and prayer is that our experience will continue to parallel the experience of God's people here because we have lived like the people of God in the Old Testament to a lesser extent and in a different way. We have lived through a exile of sorts. We've lived through a period of time where we haven't been able to gather, we haven't been able to worship in person, uh, as many people have experienced. And yet God's people, I think, have experienced that in a particularly stark and troubling way. We've lived through that experience, and as we've done that, we have experienced, all of us, losses, I think, of one kind or another. But God has not forgotten his people, and he's called us back together and he's regathering his church for worship, and he's regathering our church for worship. And he's, just as he supernaturally enabled the people in the book of Nehemiah to rebuild this wall around Jerusalem in an incredibly quick period of time, in a similar way, he's provided this space, this building for us in a, I don't know if I would say miraculous, but certainly an uh, incredibly gracious and providential way.
And he's reminded us of his never-failing covenant love that we've talked about over the last couple weeks, that we respond with renewed commitment to him as he intends to use every single one of us in his mission to, to this place, to this place in our time. And when we consider all that God has done, we, like the people of God in 445 BC, we have to respond with celebration. If we truly can take a step back and consider all that God has done in our lives individually and in our life as a church together, we have to respond with celebration. We can't help but celebrate. We cannot keep God's blessings bottled up for us. How could we not celebrate? And that's what this passage is about. So we're not quite at the end. Next week we'll finish the, uh, the book of Nehemiah together. But as we approach the end of the series, this morning what I want to look at and what I want to talk about is what it looks like to live not as a reservoir of toxic holiness, but rather as an overflowing cup, as a river of life, to live a life where the river of God's blessing continually overflows its banks. And so there's really just one point this morning, and it's this, why do we celebrate? Why, why are God's people people who celebrate? And in particular, we see that God's people uh, celebrate with singing. You know, if you think about it, there aren't that many places in American culture where you would walk into a building like this and sing. I mean, that would be really weird if you went to a restaurant and they began to sing. Most places we would go and gather as a group, we don't sing, but God's people sing. Why? Why do we sing? Well, look at verse 27. It says, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. So the work is done. They finished the wall. And because the wall is done, it says, so they sought the Levites in all of their places. So the people go out and they find the religious leaders and they say, you've got to come and you've got to lead us because we have to celebrate. And they say, we, we have to celebrate. Come, we need you to lead us. To, uh, so they bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication. It says, with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And then what happens is that all of the, the, the religious leaders come, and all of the people come, and the Levites um, come, and Nehemiah splits them into two groups, essentially, but it did two choirs. And one choir goes south, and one choir goes north. And the, the, the first choir, they, they all get up on top of the wall, this wall that they've built. I guess it's, you know, several feet wide. And they all get up on top of this wall, and Ezra, who is the, the priest and the, the scribe, he's like the primary religious leader for God's people in this time. He leads the people as they head southward, and, ha and half of the people go southward and kind of walk around the perimeter of the wall of the city around... Uh, the wall around the city of Jerusalem. And then the other half of the people, they get up on the wall and they go north. And uh, they begin to march and they begin to sing and they begin to celebrate. And Nehemiah says that he, he follows behind them and he walks behind the second group. And so both groups kind of circle around the city until they reach the temple. And when they, re when they reconnect at the temple, they come, it says, to maybe to into or, or right outside to the temple, and it says that a spontaneous worship service breaks out there. And it says in verse 42, the singers sang with Jezariah as their leader, 
And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. Listen to how many times you hear the word rejoice or joy here. They offered great sacrifices and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. I don't know, was that five or six times? There's a lot of joy. <laughs> they're singing, they're celebrating, there's so many people, and it's such a loud celebration that even people in the villages that are outside of the city of Jerusalem uh, hear them. They're so loud, and there's so many of them, and we might ask, why? Why, why are they celebrating? Why are they celebrating? But it's because this is what we do whenever something glorious takes place. It's simply a, a human reaction to celebrate and sing when something great and glorious happens. And they have just gone through this ritual, really, a, a covenant renewal ceremony where God, they, they've been reminded of God's uh, covenant commitment to his people and his people respond with, with, with renewing their commitment to God. They go through this ritual, but the, the response after the ritual of covenant renewal is celebration. And I think that's the way that as humans we mark every significant event in life. I mean, if you think about what a wedding is, it's a ritual followed by a feast. Right? There's a, there's a ceremony and the ceremony is very... You know, it's joyful, but it's, but it's serious and it's solemn. And then, and then you go to the reception and, you know, and then all chaos breaks loose, right? It's, it's, a, it's a party. There's a ritual, but then there's a, then there's a party, then there's a celebration. Or, I mean, um, think about, so last week, uh, my wife and I were supposed to have a, a Zoom meeting with a friend who lives in Atlanta on Friday morning. And the night before, he emailed us and said, hey, I'm really sorry, I'm going to have to reschedule because the city of Atlanta has canceled school tomorrow for all of the kids because the Braves won the World Series. And it was tragic because we're Dodgers fans in the Hales family. Um, the whole city, you know, there's a parade, you know, there's this ritual, but then there's a celebration. That's how we mark anything great and glorious and important. At birthdays and graduations and retirements, we have to celebrate. Why? Because something glorious has happened, and when we behold something glorious, we have to praise it. We have to talk about how, in the truest sense, awesome it is. I love to ski. <laughs> I cannot wait. <laughs> I cannot wait. I don't know, a couple weeks maybe? I don't know when I'm going to get to ski. But I'm going to talk about it forever. I'm not even, I haven't even done it yet. I'm already talking about how much I love to ski. Why? Because it's awesome. I don't mean like, dude, it's awesome. I mean like, I love to ski. <laughs> and when you, you know, have that perfect ski day with fresh powder, and you're there with people you care about, and you get off the lift and they drop the, rope line to a run that was closed, and you, you have to talk about how incredible it is. You have to praise it. It's natural as human beings. We have to celebrate when we behold something glorious. This, this is how it's been since the very beginning. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of the Bible in the early chapters of the book of Genesis, God creates the cosmos, and then he creates Adam and it says that Adam is, is essentially all alone. 
And, and God brings the animals in like this line that passes before Adam and he names them all. And it, it's like Adam is just realizing animal after animal how lonely he is. And he's got to make up a name for every single animal. He's like bear, tiger, donkey, but none of them are a suitable partner for Adam. And then God creates Eve, and it says that Adam wakes up, and he sees his wife, and he's like, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. And uh, in Genesis 2, it records, he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And scholars say that it's poetry. He's singing He's like drearily given, I know, not drearily, but he's given names to all of these animals that don't suit him. And then when he sees his wife, he's got to sing. He's like, finally, this is what I've been waiting for. He burst into song. When God sets his people free from slavery in Egypt, and he brings them through the Red Sea, and he saves them from the pursuing Egyptian army. In Exodus 15, It says that Moses and the people of Israel sing, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. When God saves his people, we sing. When when the angel comes to Mary and tells her that, though she's still a virgin, that she is pregnant and she will give birth to God incarnate, she sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. And God, my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. Throughout the Bible, God's people sing. There are over 400 commands to sing in the Bible. It's the the second most common command in the whole of the Bible is that we sing. Throughout the Bible, God's people are singing. I mean, the longest book in the Bible, if you open up right to the middle, the largest book in the Bible is a collection of 150 songs. That's what the Psalms are. I mean, why would the Bible dedicate so much real estate to singing, to music, to songs? I mean, God could have solved the problem of evil in that space, right? Why not give us some more information? Why not give us some more truth? Why not tell us what we need to hear? The truth, the truth is that the truth might make us go, mm, that's interesting. But when we catch a glimpse of the beauty of God, It causes us to sing. God's people have always been people who sing because being a Christian means that we don't just know things about God. We don't just know that there is a God and we know certain things about what he is like, but being a Christian means that we have glimpsed his beauty. We haven't just read about his great acts in history. We have experienced them in our lives. We've experienced his love and it makes us sing The truth is that cold religion will never make you sing. It will never make you sing. You know, if we can't sing, you know, some some people are thinking, I don't have a very good singing voice. I mean, I don't have a very good singing voice. If you want company, you can come sit down by here and we'll just growl it out together. It's okay. But if you can't sing. It's not for lack of a good voice. It's for lack of a song. It's for lack of something that has captured your heart. If we can't sing, I think the truth is, if we're honest, if we can't sing, it's because we're too self-conscious. And the ability to sing means that 
something greater than ourselves has captured our hearts in such a way that it eclipses our self-awareness and our self-consciousness that it enables us to sing. If we've been captivated by the beauty of what God has done for us in Jesus, it'll make us sing. This weekend, a couple of my kids have been um, practicing songs for the Christmas thing at their school, which pains me because it's not even Thanksgiving yet. But the songs they're singing don't really have anything to do with Christmas, so I guess it's okay. (laughs) It's about sleds and white trees and stuff. (laughs) But the real point, um, besides that subtle dig, is that my kids, as we drive around, just sing without self-consciousness. Why? Because it's never occurred to them that they're doing anything less... uh, doing something that's not remarkable, right? They know that mom and dad love them. They're not worried about how they sound. They do it without self-consciousness. How about us? Are we people who sing? Are we people who have something to sing about? Of course, of course we are. Of course we do have something to sing about. We sing because the gospel is true. We sing because Jesus was born. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He rules over all things and one day he will return again to finally make everything right. That makes us sing. We sing because he has taken away our sins so we don't have to worry about ourselves anymore. We can be not overly self-conscious because of what Jesus has done and we can sing. I've been reading a, um, a book called The Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman. He was a, a therapist and a just incredibly insightful cultural commentator. Uh, he died in 1996. Um, but he wrote, he wrote that one of the signs of a society that is in a state of unhealth is that it has lost its ability to be playful. A society that is unhealthy has lost its ability to to celebrate because everything then becomes deadly serious. The cross has removed for Christians our deadly seriousness. The cross turns our mourning into dancing. Jesus gives us a reason to sing. Jesus gives us a reason to celebrate. And the reality is that singing then becomes an important part of the way that a healthy culture is built. I mean, that's just true in general. It's true in a church. It's true in the church globally. It's true in our church specifically. But it's true in our church because it's true in general. Singing is an important part of the way that cultures are built and formed and carried on. I mean, could you imagine um, the country of Jamaica without singing? Could you imagine the culture of Italy without singing? You can't eat Italian food without music, can you? I think it's illegal. Um, You know, I mean, totally different context, but in the South, before the Civil War, in the horrors of slavery, enslaved men and women sang as they worked in the fields, they sang spirituals. Why? Because singing is one of the ways that cultures are built. We hand down songs that were handed down to us, and in so doing, the young and the outsider are brought into our family. Our narratives are passed down through song. Our identity is passed down to us 
and we pass it down to others through songs that we sing. So who sings? Well, in this passage, what's clear is this, that everybody sings. Everybody sings. Men, (laughs) everybody sings. I know it's not cool for men to sing in church, but everybody sings. The leaders and the lay people sing. The young and the old sing. Men and women and children are all specifically described in this passage as singing. Everyone sings. Everyone sings in the church. We don't sing you know, we don't, we're not motivated to sing because we like the songs. So we sing the songs we like and we don't sing the songs we don't like. We sing because this is who we are. We sing because this is who we are. We sing because it's something we do together. You know, we don't come to church alone. I mean, I know that some of us, I mean, I drove here alone in, in my car We may arrive here alone. You may be here for the first time. You may not know the name of another person in this room, but you're not here alone. We don't come into church. We don't come before God and worship alone. You might find yourself on any given week singing a song, and and if you stop to think about it, think, this song doesn't really describe what's going on in my heart. You know, we might find ourselves singing a song of lament where we are saying, God, how much longer will this go on? And, and you're coming off a great week. But we don't sing just as a reflection of what's in our hearts as individuals. We sing because we mourn with those who mourn, and we celebrate with those who celebrate. We sing songs not just for ourselves. We sing songs for people who are sitting down at the other end of the road that had a very different week than we did. We sing songs praising God and thanking him for what he's done to remind ourselves that we always have something to be grateful for. Singing is an important way in which cultures are built, and it's as we sing that experientially we are engrafted into God's people. You know, we, we become members of the church through baptism, but it's really as we sing and as we sing together that we feel like we are a part of God's people. And because it's as we sing that we experientially are unfolded into God's people. It's, it's through singing often that we are equipped to face some of the challenges of life. You know, I think one of the questions that we have to ask if we're going to talk about singing and celebration is, how do we sing when we don't feel like it? How do we sing when we've come off what for many of us has been an incredibly difficult season. How can we sing after all that we've been through? How can we sing when we've suffered? How do we sing when we're struggling? Well, I think the Bible would tell us that we have to sing when it's hard. We have to sing when we're depressed. Sometimes it's singing when we least feel like it, that we most need it. Several years ago, um, I went through just an incredibly difficult season of life where, um, without going into details, I was incredibly discouraged and just feeling like I had been betrayed by some people who I had loved and invested in and cared about. And for a couple of months, I just, I just struggled and doubted, I, I, I don't tend as a person, I don't tend to doubt the existence of God, but I often doubt whether God likes me. You know, 
yeah, he's there, but does he care about me? Does he like me? Um, and and it's, that's really hard as a pastor because every week you've got to get up and say something about how great God is. And, and for a couple months, I just I didn't, I didn't feel it at all. And yet in, in that period, it was through songs that God kind of drove the truth of the gospel deep into my soul. Um, one song in particular, this kind of older song by Rich Mullins, it says, hold me Jesus because I'm shaking. I can't even say it. <laughs> hold me Jesus because I'm shaking like a leaf. You have been king of my glory. Will you be my prince of peace? And just the truth of that song, over and over, I'd listen to that song a dozen times a day. And it was like God was saying, this is true. And I know you don't feel it right now. But this is true, and this is what you need to hear. And this is what you need to sing. A song that I had known for a long time is what God used in that season to equip me to go through something awful. And I think that's why we have to sing even when it's hard. And that's why we have to show up for one another, even when it doesn't seem that important, because we need to show up and sing for the person standing next to us. We're sitting next to us that's struggling, and is struggling to find the voice to sing. We have to sing even when we don't feel like it, because music has a way of grabbing hold of us in a way that mere words cannot do. Anne Lamott was a, um, is an author. Um, she's incredibly smart and witty and irreverent. And in one of her books, she tells the story of against all of her expectations coming to faith in Jesus. And uh, she was a mess. She was, I think, a drug addict. She was an alcoholic. She was a single mom with a young child. And she talks about how on a Sunday morning, I think in San Francisco, she was walking to a coffee shop and she walked past a little Presbyterian church with maybe 40 people sitting there or standing there singing and the singing began to draw her in. She hated the preaching. She, she said she always left before the preaching, but she said this, she wrote, I love singing even about Jesus. I didn't want to be preached to about Jesus to me, Jesus made about as much sense as Scientology. It was the singing that pulled me in and split me wide open. Eventually, a few months after I started coming, at first she would come and she would stand outside. She would stand in the back, but she said eventually after a couple months, I took a seat in one of the folding chairs off all by myself and the singing enveloped me. It was fury and resonance coming from everyone's heart. There was no sense of performance or judgment, only that the music was breath and food. Something inside me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down all the boundaries and distinctions that kept me so isolated. Sitting there standing with them to sing, sometimes so shaky and sick that I felt I might tip over. I felt bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of and tricked into coming back to life. Isn't that beautiful? 
we sing because we have a God who is worth singing about. God's people have been people who sing for thousands of years. Throughout the Bible, there are stories, you know, uh, Paul and so Paul and Silas singing while they are imprisoned in the book of Acts. A couple years ago, there was a story that made headlines when 21 Christians were martyred in Libya. And as they stood on the beach, knowing that their end was upon them, they sang hymns to Jesus. We have to sing. We have a God worth singing about. He has moved heaven and earth to show us his great love and his kindness. And when we get a glimpse of his glory, we can't help but being people who sing. Amen. So let me see if there are any questions for the Q&A this morning. Okay, there's nothing coming through. So let me pray for us as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you don't just talk at us or talk to us, but you, you show up in our lives. You are present with us. You come to us in Jesus. You come to us by your spirit now. God, we pray that you would uh, make the truth of these words come alive in our, in our lives, that we would be people who don't just know things about you, but that we respond with all that we are, because you are a God who is worth singing about. And now as we come to this celebration, would you use this bread and this wine uh, to strengthen our faith, help us to come smiling and singing. This is a feast that, God, that Jesus has prepared for us. And would you use this meal uh, to equip us to be people who can go out into the world whatever we face, singing because we know that you hold us in your hands. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.